0: Really, the reason the National Guard exists is we are the combat reserve of the Army and the Air Force. And it's the manning, training, and equipping to fight our wars, our nation's wars, that give us the ability to respond to our communities. My goal for both the Army and the Air Force with respect to the National Guard is we've got to be deployable, we've got to be maintainable, and we've got to be interoperable on the battlefield.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast, I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had the chance to have recently with General Daniel Holkinson, Chief of the National Guard Bureau. The National Guard is a key pillar of the U.S. defense enterprise, but it also has some pretty fundamentally unique qualities. With both an Army and Air Force component, it is inherently joint. It is also highly dispersed, made up of 54 separate entities. And it serves parallel missions, both a key source of combat capability for the Joint Force and with its members often called on to respond to emergencies locally in their communities. In the 20 years since 9-11, National Guard forces have been relied on consistently during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That makes now a really good time to explore what the future holds for the Guard. And there's nobody better to do that with than the Chief of the National Guard Bureau. It's a great discussion that I hope you enjoy. Before we get to it though, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the US government. All right, here's my conversation with General Daniel Hopkinson. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast.
0: Hey, thank you, John. Great opportunity to be with you guys today.
1: So, you are the Chief of the National Guard Bureau. We're going to talk about some issues that are, I think, really important to the National Guard. Um, but to sort of set the context for that conversation, can you give listeners uh, a little bit of a sense of what your role as uh, the Chief of the National Guard Bureau entails?
0: Okay. So, John, thank you for that question. So, when you look at the Chief of the National Guard Bureau, I'm really there as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to represent the non-federalized National Guard. And so those are folks that are in a Title 32 status. So if you look at the 445,000 people in both the Army and the Air National Guard, they're in all 50 states, three territories and the District of Columbia. But on a day-to-day basis, they fall under the command and control of their governors, which is usually delegated down through their adjutant's general. And as the chief, I do not constitutionally have command and control over them. But what I do is I do represent them, all 445,000, and especially for those that are not mobilized. So like on a day today, we've got 59,000 mobilized. And so for those that are not mobilized, I'm there to represent them on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and also within the Pentagon on behalf of both the Army and the Air Force, um, representing the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard.
1: So the National Guard does wear the same uniform as the active duty army and air force and the army and air force reserve, but there is one thing that sets it apart and that's the sort of um, dual mission over the past 20 years, national guard units have deployed repeatedly to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, They've also, you know, they're also involved in everything from responses to flooding and natural disasters to, uh, to the COVID response last year. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of dual identity?
0: Yes, John. And so one thing that we commonly run into is folks look at the National Guard as the folks that respond to hurricanes, to wildfires, to floods or, or disasters, and particularly over the last 18 months um, with respect to COVID and, and some of the civil disturbance. But really, the reason the National Guard exists is we are the combat reserve of the Army and the Air Force, and it's the manning, training, and equipping to fight our wars, our nation's wars, that give us the ability to respond to our communities and so it's a constant thing that we we try and emphasize to folks that, that we are a combat reserve, but because we are, it gives us the capability to respond to our communities and, and not so much vice versa.
1: How do you strike a balance between those two sets of responsibilities?
0: Yeah. So when we look at that, it, our readiness for combat operations is our number one priority. And usually domestic operations, we're there to help our communities whenever they need us. Um, but if a unit is scheduled to deploy, that always takes precedence. If they're getting ready to deploy, that always takes precedence. And a good example is if you go back to June of last year, we had 120,000 guardsmen mobilized, primarily with respect to COVID response and also the civil disturbance events that were taking place across our country. But throughout that time and throughout COVID, we've never missed a single deployment. And we average about 20 to 25,000 deployed on any given day um, throughout the year, and so we made sure that we fenced those units, that they got their training, um, they were there when they were needed, and they got downrange to perform their missions.
1: So I'd like to ask, you know, what effects has twenty years of of uh, rapid operational tempo, busy deployment schedule, and and frankly, pretty heavy reliance on uh, on the National Guard had on the Guard.
0: Yeah. And if you go back to to 9-11, it was really one of those pivotal moments in the history of the National Guard. Prior to that, the National Guard was really viewed as a strategic reserve. Like if there was a world war, then we would mobilize the National Guard. Um, But over the past 20 years, we've realized the reliance on the National Guard and we went from a strategic reserve to really an operational reserve. And the expectation after 9-11 for Guardsmen was that you were going to deploy at some point and probably multiple times.
1: It has been a really high op tempo.
0: Yeah. So over the past 20 years, it was um, when you look at the National Guard, we have really transformed the organization. We were able to modernize, equip, and train uh, to really be interchangeable on the battlefield. And what we would tell folks is when you're in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere deployed downrange... Our name takes as U.S. Army or U.S. Air Force. It, it doesn't say National Guard. and The expectation is we would do exactly what all of our active counterparts would do. And so we made sure that we were trained and equipped to do everything that we were asked to do. And I think we were extremely successful. If you look over the past 20 years, we've had over a million um, folks mobilize and deploy into either Iraq and Afghanistan. And sadly, as well, we had a, a lot of fatalities over there. Um, for soldiers and airmen that were were doing what our nation asked them to do alongside their active and reserve counterparts
1: with the with the joint force really in a multi-year period of transformation um, transformation in many senses adopting new concepts and doctrine adapting to a new uh, strategic environment planning for uh, for new pacing threats you know given that transformation you um, do you expect uh, to sort of go back to the National Guard being a strategic reserve or or has that ship sort of sailed, so to speak, and the National Guard's role as an operational reserve is really solidifying?
0: Yeah, I would agree that the ship has kind of sailed on that. Um, when you look at the National Guard, so we're 39% of the Army's operational forces, we're 30% of the Air Force's operational forces, and we're actually 20% of the entire joint force. And so when you look at the demands on on the Department of Defense and our military resources, it just makes sense that the National Guard is there to continue as an operational reserve. Uh, Number one, so that we make sure that our formations are man-trained and equipped to do whatever our nation asks, but also to help reduce the, the purse tempo and op tempo on the active component. And when you look at where we are today, I mean, the expectation, as I mentioned earlier, is that when somebody comes in the guard, they expect to deploy and they know that that's part of the system now.
1: The The armed services have sort of coalesced around this idea that uh, future warfare uh, will be multi-domain or, or all domain, depending on which services parlance uh, we're using. Does the National Guard have, uh, you know, sort of a built-in advantage here given both the Army and Air Force components of the Guard where jointness kind of comes a bit naturally?
0: Yeah, it is a great jointness there, especially when you look at the state level because they've, and previously I was the Adjutant General for Oregon. So each state has an Adjutant General, really a two-star in charge of the National Guard. And while I was there, I had command of an Army Brigade Combat Team. I also had another Army separate brigade. But I also had two fighter wings, uh, one up in Portland, Oregon, and one down in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And so inherently, you know we have to man train and equip all of those units. And so you do develop a, a great appreciation for joint operations really within the state. But one thing that that's often overlooked is if you look at our state partnership program, and that's where we have a state that will pair with a foreign country, And in the current National Guard today, we've got 83 of those partnerships. And so it helps develop a long-term relationship with those countries where our officers and soldiers and airmen will do joint training events or they will come to the United States or we will go to their country. And the example I would use as an adjutant general is we have a partnership with Bangladesh and Vietnam. And so we would do training exchanges. And so not only do we work in a joint environment, But we also worked in an environment with partners and allies where we helped develop those relationships. And then, as you mentioned from the start, really, when you look at the local community response, you know, we're working with state emergency managers, local first responders, um, with FEMA and a lot of other organizations. So you get a, a very broad spectrum of relationships and the ability to work with different organizations, which I think is extremely helpful.
1: Yeah, I, I had the chance to be in uh, be in Ukraine a few weeks ago. Uh, on Independence Day, um, we went and saw the parade. It was massive uh, in Kiev. Uh, there were thousands upon thousands of people lining the streets. Um, you know, the military rolled out every piece of equipment. They had vehicles, 152-millimeter um, artillery pieces, T-64 tanks, T-72 tanks. I think I even saw a T-84 tank. Uh, the crowd was excited, but I will tell you that you know, the loudest cheer that I heard was when a group of U.S. soldiers marched by. Uh, they were National Guard soldiers. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And in that case, that's the relationship with the California National Guard. And I would tell you their Adjutant General Dave Baldwin is is one of the most favorite people in Ukraine. Um, and then the ability to be there and train with them and also have that day-to-day connection and partnership um, is really helpful. And you know not only to Ukraine, but also for us, because it gives us a chance to operate in a different environment. And for a lot of our soldiers and airmen, they learn from you know, their counterparts just as much as they learn from us. And what we find is because our, our guardsmen tend to, tain, tend to stay in units for a longer period of time, they develop relationships at the junior officer and NCO level that will continue for 10, 15, and in some cases, 20 years. So that the future leaders of these organizations have long-term relationships with a lot of the future leaders within the National Guard.
1: That is a great point about the uh, the relationships with partners that are enabled by the length of time, you know, which is comparatively longer than their active duty counterparts. That National Guard soldiers stay with the same units. Um, you know, given that that longer length of time. Um, you know, beyond the relationships that 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 enables, can you discern an impact on, say, you know, things like institutional memory, unit cohesion, and so forth?
0: It's actually really important. Um, And I would say as a brigade commander, um, I knew my battalion commanders and actually a lot of the company commanders for years, and we had seen them grow up. And when you can evaluate somebody's potential and performance over a series of time, you know what their strengths or weaknesses are. And then in this case, when we went into a combat environment, you knew those individuals that were really going to stand out, um, the people that you needed to put in the most difficult situations. And it really helps us because of the duration and the time at which you know these folks.
1: The state partnership program, you know, as you mentioned, is really about relationships and that's it's actually sort of a theme that I think underwrites how the National Guard functions you have relationships with foreign partners through the state partnership program uh, relationships with the active component which is which is critical and relationships between the National Guard in each of the states DC and uh, the three territories that have National Guard units you know effectively it's it's you know 50 plus separate forces. can you talk about the relationships between those separate entities?
0: So I would just tell you, it's a great relationship. And so every Thursday, I speak with all of the adjutants general. And what we do is we share things that we're learning from each other or also issues or concerns. Um, but I would tell you, so if you go back to January 6th, um, when we had the, uh, the issue at the Capitol, and so I reached out to all 54 National Guards, and every single one sent either soldiers or airmen to, to Washington, D.C., to include Guam and Alaska. And in a matter of about 13 days, we mobilized and deployed 26,000 guardsmen to our nation's capital. And if you go back to just last week um, with Hurricane Ida, when it hit Louisiana, um, the Louisiana National Guard, their main unit, the 256th Infantry Brigade Combat Team is currently deployed overseas. So their largest formation is gone. But prior to hurricane season, we would get together, identify what shortages may be prevalent in any of those states and states volunteer forces to fill those gaps. So when I was there last week, we had 15 states that were down there helping out Louisiana. And oh, by the way, one of the helicopters from Louisiana was out in California fighting forest fires. So I would say it's it's a very collegial relationship um, between the states. And they use what's called an emergency management assistance compact to where they can request support from another state and we, I can't think of a time where we haven't been able to fill any of those requests.
1: You mentioned January 6th and, and what happened at the Capitol. Um, all 54 states and territories, as you said, sent National Guardsmen. Was that deliberate? Um, was there some advantage compared to, say, just mobilizing a lot more service members from a few states?
0: Yes, and so that was a request that we had. And I worked very closely at the time uh, with Secretary of the Army, McCarthy, And um, due to the to the way it structured the chain of command within the D.C. National Guard, it fell to the secretary of the army at the time and, and still does today. And so his request was to get National Guard forces as many as we could. And the number continued to grow over time. And we continued to ask for support. And all 54, they met every single request until we got exactly where they where they wanted us to be.
1: You know that's unique uh, compared to the active component or even or even the Army or Air Force Reserve it's unique to the National Guard that it is a request as yeah. you said um, how does that work in practice
0: so under that case what they would do is the uh, the the governor from the state that was sending forces would sign a memorandum uh, with the DC National Guard that those soldier would would fall under take on of the adjutant general or in this case the commanding general of the DC National Guard which was Major General Will Walker at the time. Now, the governors still retained command and control so they could withdraw them at any time if they felt the need to. Uh, but while they were there, they fell under the uh, the commanding general, of the D.C. National Guard.
1: So if I can circle back to relationships, there's another one that I want to ask you about, um, and that is the relationship between the National Guard and the active component. You know, as many as many listeners, I'm sure, are aware um in the Army, all non-active combat units are in the National Guard, whereas certain combat support and combat service support capabilities um, reside, I guess, in, in the Army Reserve. I deployed with a reserve unit. It was a siap detachment, a relatively small formation. Uh, we were general support to a brigade combat team. And it was sort of okay that the first time we met the unit we worked with was in-country. Uh, but if you have an entire National Guard BCT and they're going to deploy, work alongside active duty BCTs, playing the same role in a campaign plan as those active BCTs. You know, how do you keep uh, an ongoing relationship so that a National Guard unit can be, well, I guess, cohesively integrated operationally uh, into the total army?
0: So, really, we leave that up to the chain of command. And and as in the example that that you just utilized, um, when I was a brigade commander. Um, When we were at the mobilization station, I actually brought all the Army Reserve and IRR um, augmentees to our brigade and met with all of them and just said, hey, we're really glad to have you part of the formation. We made sure the chain of command linked up with them because at the end of the day, as we talked about, it says U.S. Army on your uniform. And it doesn't matter if you're active guard or reserve. um, We all have expectations of one another. And at the end of the day, we've got a mission to accomplish. And so we're going to do that the best way possible. And as you've heard from General McConville and myself, as well as, you know, the thing that allows us to do all of that is our people and the ability to integrate either prior to or on the battlefield is one of the greatest strengths of the U.S. Army.
1: So I'd like to shift gear and, and talk a little bit about modernization. That has been a, a priority of of, well, of the joint force for years. In the National Guard, both Army and Air National Guard, uh, the need for modernization is is sometimes portrayed as especially acute because some of the equipment National Guard units have is, uh, is older. Can you, from sort of your unique vantage point, give some context to the question of, you know, I guess how much modernization is required?
0: You know, I think there's always more modernization required, but I would tell you we have an incredible relationship with General McConville, the Chief of Staff of the Army. And, you know, we are probably at the highest level of modernization that we've ever been. Uh, But as we all know, there's not unlimited resources in our country, nor really the ability for the industrial base to fill all the units in a short amount of time. And so my priority has always been to work with the Army to make sure that we are on the modernization schedules, not only in the Army, but also in the Air Force, um, particularly when we talk about the fighter roadmap, um, because we have everything from F-35s in the Air National Guard um, down to, you know, early, uh, what they call them pre Brock. Um, F16s and and some of the older F15s, so we've got to be part of that. Um, but specifically to the Army, one of the things I I initiated um, about a year and a half ago when I was a director of the Army Guard was to really reconstitute the Army National Guard divisions. And so by doing that, we had eight division headquarters. We assigned our 27 brigade combat teams to them. Our aviation brigades, um, two of which are combat aviation brigades. The other ones are um, aviation brigades, but not a full combat aviation brigade. And the intent there all along was, is to look exactly like the army formations. Now, each division is a little bit different, but as long as we get the main pieces right, then our goal is to work to modernize all of those divisions um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, and, and we saw this a few years ago, is we always want the unit closest to combat to be the most modernized. Unfortunately, because we rotate forces, we just don't know who's going to be there um, when they're called forward. And the example I'd use is the 30th Armored Brigade Combat Team out of North Carolina. Um, When they needed armored forces in Syria um, for the oil fields, they were the closest ones and they rolled in there um, because they were there and, and they had the equipment that they needed. But so we look at that aspect of it. But for me, because it's going to be really an ongoing modernization process my goal for both the Army and the Air Force with respect to the National Guard is we've got to be deployable, we've got to be maintainable, and we've got to be interoperable on the battlefield. Um, Because we know there's going to be varying generations, but as long as we can get on the battlefield, integrate, talk to each other, and fill the role that we're asked to do, then I think we're going to be successful.
1: So if I can ask you about... um... Well, I guess about people, I think I have a couple questions about, about personnel. You mentioned that service members join the National Guard and they expect to deploy, uh, especially over the past 20 years. And, and for some units in particular, that has meant deploying a lot. Given that these individuals have jobs, uh, careers, civilian lives outside of their military service, how do you keep them from, say, you know, choosing not to reenlist because of that operational tempo? There's a, you know, there's a very unique talent management challenge there.
0: Yeah. So obviously we do face some some unique challenges in the National Guard because we ask our soldiers and our airmen to, to balance their civilian career, their military career, and their family. And we know we talk about the three-legged stool. We know sometimes we have to lean on one leg more than the other. But at the end of the day, we have to find that sustainable balance so that they can do that. And when you look at not just the deployments, but You look at the response to COVID, uh, the response to civil disturbance, um, wildfires in the West, hurricanes in the Southeast, um, floods throughout the country. Um, Their purse tempo has been very high. And so what we do is we really keep in close touch with the 54 adjutants general so that we know and we really rely on our leaders at the lowest level to to really monitor that rheostat, to understand when they're getting to the breaking point and, and be able to dial it back by individual when they need to, Uh, because we do ask a lot of them. And and in some cases, if you look at some of the states, you know, the only military force is is in that state, Uh, like in the state of Oregon, where I came from, there's no active duty units. And so when you you talk about the purse temple on our people, a lot of them live in the communities and they don't live on military bases and they may be the only one in their neighborhood um, that's serving in the military. And so they have some unique challenges related to that, and also, you know, one of the things that I really work on lately is when you look at medical care, and because obviously in the active component, you everybody falls under Tricare, and the reserve component, um, some have health care through their employers, some purchase insurance on the the open market or through Tricare Reserve Select, but some of them don't have any health insurance, and so those are things like that we're trying to work with the states with and and with Congress. Um, to find a solution so that we do everything we can to make sure that our folks are ready for no matter what we ask them to do.
1: General McConville has has talked a lot about um, you know people first. Uh, given the uniqueness of the National Guard that maybe looks a little bit different uh, in the guard than it does for the active component. it has certainly it has different layers to it uh, when service members are are citizen soldiers, uh, or I guess citizen airmen too. What are the keys to kind of getting the people part of the equation right?
0: So when we look at that, it's it kind of goes back to, to finding that balance of, you know, their military career, their civilian career, and their family. And we do ask a lot of them. In fact, the last 18 months, we've asked a tremendous amount of our, our guardsmen, and they have answered every call. They've met every deployment, whether in their community or overseas in support of the combatant commanders. But we have to watch that closely. And when you look at the past year, our reenlistment rates are some of the highest that they've ever been. And we've met our end strength in in May, where normally we meet it in September. Um, so that's a reflection. But it's something that we have to watch very closely, uh, particularly when we look at some of the mission sets not directly tied to our, our overseas mission set or into our communities. And so I'm working very closely within the department to identify those tasks that could be really done by other organizations or other agencies so that when we ask our guardsmen to do missions, it's directly related to their warfight, or it's an emergency response to their communities.
1: You mentioned balancing three things, military career, civilian career, and family. So speaking specifically of the first two, um, military career and civilian career, in an ideal world, um, you know, service members' civilian skills and civilian experiences uh, could be leveraged in their military service. Uh, I think, in fact, we you know we like to tout that as one of the strengths of our reserve components. I'm not necessarily a cynic about this, and I don't want to sound like one, but especially given that the high op tempo that we've talked about, the high purse tempo, that makes striking that balance harder. Which you know it could, in some cases, incentivize members of the Guard to switch their civilian jobs to say one that's you know, more accommodating. I know personally, I know people who have migrated from private sector jobs to federal government jobs with, you know, the VA, um, the postal service, uh, because they are more accommodating than their, um, you know, the private companies they worked for were able to be. Those are, you know, I know it's just a couple of anecdotes and I certainly am not suggesting that they're definitely, you know, representative. Uh, but how do we keep that idea of leveraging civilian experience, in service members, military service from being, I guess, more aspirational than reality? And you know, I guess to put a finer point on it, how do we, how can we kind of bring people in who have valuable experience outside the military and then keep them gaining that experience while they're in the guard?
0: So that's a great question. And when you look at what we ask our folks to do, and, and we do really try and leverage their civilian skills wherever we are. And so what we do is we work very closely with the employers. And as I mentioned before, you know, it really comes down to first-line leaders understanding where their soldiers or airmen work and the demands on that. And we've been fortunate um, for the past 20 years, we've had significant support from our employers, um, and some actually do great things for their guardsmen, um, but that's not always the case. And so what we have to do is is work with the employers and show them the value that not only does a service member bring from their civilian skill set to the military, but also what they learn on the military side that makes them better employees or more capable employees in their in their civilian career. And I mean, I'll just take two quick examples that I saw personally. Um, so when I was in Iraq as a brigade commander, my operations sergeant major was a sergeant major by the name of Ed Carlson, and Ed worked for one of the major overnight delivery systems. And when we got there, we were responsible for the security on a lot of the convoy routes. And I looked at Ed one day and said, gosh, you know, how would your company do this? And Ed said, well, give me two weeks. And so we got all the folks, because he knew all the folks in our brigade that worked for these overnight delivery companies. And they took six gun trucks and drove all over Iraq for two weeks. They came back and said, okay, there's some things we can do in the US we'll never be able to do here, but here's what we can do. And they developed a plan, which I had the opportunity to brief to General Odierno at the time when he was the commander in Iraq. And when he got done with the brief, he just looked up and looked at me and the the sergeant major and said, make it happen. And just utilizing that experience, we were able to reduce the number of convoys on the road, the duration they were on the road. And we also looked more at just-in-time resupply, as opposed to making sure everything on the base was green when it didn't really need to be. And we think that had a a significant impact on the risk that we we imparted on all of our crews as they as they went out. And another one is um, when I was a uh, a, earlier in my career, I flew medevac, and in Oregon, if we were doing rescues at high altitude mountains, and we knew somebody had a particular skill set, we actually flew to the hospital that they worked at, landed on the rooftop with all their flight gear, and they left their civilian job, got in the helicopter, and we would go out and perform the mission. And then get them back to work afterwards. And so and and because of their relationship with their employer, the employer understood the importance. and then it was up to us to also relay that and really show our appreciation for the employer willing to do that. But then it really comes down to just understanding the unique skill sets that the soldiers and airmen in your formation have and knowing when to reach out and leverage that.
1: Well, wow. those are—I mean, those are really good examples. You know, they kind of highlight how you know maximizing the degree—the degree to which the National Guard can can truly harness the skills and experiences gained outside the military—can be such a force multiplier. You have talked about a few personal experiences and and observations from your career in the National Guard, which um, which I really think do a good job of kind of punctuating the broader uh, and I think important points that you're making. Sticking with your Personal experience. Um, you spent 10 years on active duty after commissioning before switching to the National Guard. When you made that transition, what surprised you the most?
0: So it was interesting. I, as an aviator at the time, I, uh, I'll never forget I walked into the, the local National Guard unit because I wanted to continue flying and I opened the door in the hangar and I, I literally could have eaten off the floor. I mean, the hangar floor was spotless, it was painted. And although the unit had Huey helicopters at the time, they were immaculate. And what I realized, particularly related to aviation, is um, they had technicians that worked Monday through Friday on the aircraft, but they were in the unit on the weekend. These folks had known that aircraft from the day they it arrived in the unit. They knew everything about it. And because they stayed there, they got extremely proficient at what they did. And now this was prior to 9-11. And After 9-11, what I saw was a lot of young men and women coming into the National Guard with the expectation to deploy and and to serve their country overseas, uh, not just at home. But the level of professionalism just continued to grow. And a lot of young men and women, when they saw that opportunity um, to serve alongside or overseas um, with their active and reserve counterparts, it was just really eye-opening to me. And, you know, my time on active duty, I didn't have much interaction with the Guard. Um, But the more I got to it, the more I realized things that that kind of made me take a step back. And what I realized is like anybody that serves our country, they just wanted to serve, they wanted to make a difference. And many saw that opportunity by deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, but many also saw it um, in responding to their communities. And as I mentioned, I was in uh, Louisiana last week and I saw three young privates from the Kansas National Guard that were down there. And even though they had masks on, I could see the smile on their face. And that was the first time they actually had left the state of Kansas. And they were there um, helping hound out food and water in downtown New Orleans. And just the, uh, the eagerness and the happiness to make a difference wherever they were was just something that was super impressive to me. How
1: much has the National Guard changed uh, in your time in the Guard? 25 years, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I think it has changed significantly from, from what I have seen, because when you look at where we are today, every single soldier and airman in the National Guard either came in after 9-11 or either re-enlisted or committed to serve as an officer after that. And so everybody here in our formations now knows what that expectation is. And I just see the level of professionalism increase over time at, at every level. And on the Air Guard side, if you, you know, unique to them, about 30% of the Air National Guard is full time, but they still meet the f- same readiness requirements as their active duty counterparts. Our fighter squadrons have the same requirements as active duty. On the Army, it's a little bit different because we were not base centric, uh, and about 16% of our force is full time. But the ability for us to now train not only at the company and battalion level, but as brigade combat teams and having those brigade combat teams, combat aviation brigades, maneuver um, enhancement brigades to be assigned to a division, we're now building that large-scale combat operations understanding from the company level all the way up to the division level.
1: Well, to I guess to wrap up, I kind of want to hand the floor over to you, so to speak. Um, We have a pretty broad and... You know I would say diverse listener base. We've got military and non-military listeners uh, among the military listeners, active and reserve component. Is there anything that you would uh, like to communicate uh, to, I guess especially our military listeners and and maybe specifically to those serving in the National Guard?
0: You know, it's the same message I take everywhere, John. it's and i I cannot thank them enough. Uh, when you look at what we ask them to do and their ability to always stand up and do it, it is, it's truly incredible. and i'm I'm that guy that gets to walk in uh, as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and in the Pentagon and represent all the great things that they do every single day. And you know, I would also say to our to the active and and other folks that you know, if you do decide to leave the active component, you know we would love to have you in the National Guard. Um, You bring that level of experience, you make our organization better, and it gives us a chance to show others, you know, what the National Guard is all about. And for many of us, we come in because we want to serve, we want to make a difference. And obviously, just like all components of the Army and the Air Force, you know, we we help provide that opportunity.
1: Well, sir, I think we are going to uh, leave it there. You know, the National Guard is really this, I think, critical component of our defense enterprise. And yet... Especially for those who don't have firsthand experience with it, it can sometimes be a little opaque. Uh, so I think listeners will really appreciate the opportunity to hear from you, the chief of the National Guard Bureau. So, so thank you once again for coming on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity. I I really appreciate it. Um, we've uh, we've got a lot of great folks out there doing wonderful things, and we're just trying to do our part like everybody else.
1: All right, sir. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. Thanks again.